Hey guys, welcome to my podcast. I pray you are empowered to walk in the fullness of your God design. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And remember, enforcing purpose, it starts with you. So I, um, I'm excited about tonight. I sometimes feel very um, overwhelmed when I have to re-preach messages because um, God is continuously adding to them. And of course, what we're talking about this weekend is the enforcing you and the enforcing purpose messages that have both been written into books, which quite honestly could both be their own conferences. So as I've kind of been trying to pick and pull and God, what do you want me to share this weekend? Tell me the demographic of the people that will be here. Tell me the demographic of the spirits that will be here. What are we talking about and what do you want me to narrow this down to? And so I I feel like uh, some of my notes are like six pages long and I'm like, God, you're going to have to narrow this down. These people don't want to sit here that long. But I'm very excited about being able to bring these two messages to you because they are very near and dear to my heart. Um, Those of you who are here from Calvary Church, whoop, whoop, uh, (laughs) uh, you might have remember, I think it was in 2018 that we had the This Is Me conference uh, and I wrote a message based on this is me. Was it 2018, Amy? Uh, Okay. Uh, I did a message called This Is Me, and the book Enforcing You actually came out of This Is Me. And I'm going to tell you that the message that is in this book has absolutely been pivotal to my life personally, but I know it's also been pivotal to a lot of people's lives as well. So I'm going to try and sum a lot of it up, but I'm also then going to follow up with some teaching and demonstration. The demonstration is always fun, right? And because I think sometimes the best way for us to learn is to not be talked at anymore, but to actually see demonstration to actually get get to experience how God works. So we're going to do some talking, and we're going to do some teaching, and we're going to do some preaching, and then we're going to do some ministering and demonstrating, so I'm very excited about that as well. The movie... Uh, the Greatest Showman, in that was a song called This Is Me. And a lot of people love that song. How many of you guys know the song I'm talking about? This is me. Okay, I don't remember the, I don't remember the words. Get the book, it's in the word. But I love, this, I love this song, and I think everybody loves this song because it's that pivotal moment where a bunch of people who were considered rejects in the world, who were considered mismatches, who were considered like their creation, their design was all messed up, they had settled in a dark place, they had settled in a room, they had settled in rejection, they had settled in isolation, and of course we know a man comes along and says, look, I see your weakness, I see what the world sees, but I don't see it as a weakness. I see it as a strength. I see it as something to put on display. And where the man says you are weakest, I say you are strongest. And somehow throughout the entire movie, the belief system that this man has for these people begins to shift their mindset and they come into this place where they not only say, we see you believe in us, but they shift into a place where they say, now I believe in me too. And then comes this, this is me. This is me. And they're celebrating who they are for the very first time in their entire lives. Their parents have been embarrassed of them. We see all this in the very beginning. And out of this, this entire message of this song, we, we hear this, this question that we all wonder, and that is, how do we define who we are? Like, who gets to define what's healthy, what's not healthy, what's good, what's not good, what's evil, what's good, How, who gets to define those things? And so we, we have this question of who am I and how do I define myself? I think that's the age-old question, and I'm reminded of even in my own childhood of growing up, we moved around a lot, and I remember thinking, you know, with every culture, when we moved from Maryland to Nevada, it's a completely different culture, and that culture came with a whole other set of rules of what it looks like to be acceptable, right? And so what I found was, as I moved around as a child, I found that I was trying to follow this moving target of what it looks like and who I'm supposed to be in order to get the love I so desperately needed. And I struggled a lot with feeling rejection. As an adult, I feel that way. I felt that way a lot of ways in churches. You know, let's be honest, when you go into different churches, in some it's cool to go forward, in some it's not cool to go forward, in some it's cool to raise your hands. And so we even, even in, in church and in religion and denomination, we find that we're being defined by the world around us instead of the world within us. 
Definitions are what we are looking for. You know, in the Bible it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form. The earth was without form. Now, in the Hebrew, that means it was formlessness. It also means it was, there was confusion, and it means an unreality, meaning it wasn't real. There was no reality in it. There, it wasn't a thing. It, there was no substance to it. There was no definition to it. I, when we look around this room, we're always looking for things to define things. We put a frame around the door because we go, okay, this is a door. It defines the door for us. And so we're always looking for definitions. If I am reading a a book or I'm reading a paragraph and there's a word in there and I'm not sure what it means, I could completely mistake the entire context of the paragraph because I don't have the definition of the word. Isn't it true that if we go one place and the world says this is the definition of what you need to look like in order to be accepted, then the entire context of our life gets skewed because we have a false definition of who we're supposed to be in a moment. And so it begins to shape who we are. And so the Bible goes on, it says it was void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Look, we are all looking to be defined because definition brings clarity and we like clarity. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do so I can do it because I want to be pleasing. I want to fit in. I want to be successful. Tell me, to, tell me a definition. And so you hear me saying a lot of times I talk about your God design. Now your God design, what does that mean? Your God design is God's definition of you. Now everybody just place your hand on your heart and say, God, you have defined me. Okay, say it one more time. God, you have defined me. All right, so here's what I want you to know. Simply put, God's, the God design is God's definition of you. Our system, our experiences, our relationships, our jobs, our grades, where we went to school, who we've been married to, who we haven't been married to, who we've divorced, who we haven't divorced. Come on, let's just be real in the room. All of these things are offering you a definition of who you are. You are, but God also offers you a definition. And all of life is us kind of bobbling back and forth between all these definitions. Now, I'm, I get to be a visiting pastor, and so I get to go into all different kinds of churches. And so it's hilarious to me that I do really get to experience, in this church, I'm defined this way, and this is what I'm allowed to do, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But if I'm not careful, I might allow that to define who I am as a minister. Instead of saying, I honor the rules, of course, I honor the authority, I honor the ways of different cultures, but that culture doesn't define me. It doesn't define who I am. It doesn't become my identity. See, I can go in there and I can submit and honor different kinds of styles, but I don't have to become that style. When I walk out of there, I say, that was great, I enjoyed it, but it's not who I am. Right? I don't have to be threatened by that. I can go into an environment where it's completely different than I am, and I can say, that was great. I loved that, but that's not who I am. I get to go back to my closet and say, God, tell me who you say I am. I'm looking for my God design, which is what? How God defines me. How God defines me. Now, this word definition, the urban dictionary definition of the word definition, did you follow? If you define something... You show, you describe, or you clearly state what it is and what it is like. Doesn't that sound nice? Just tell me what you want for dinner. Just tell me what you want to wear. Come on, anybody got teenagers in the room? Just tell me what you want me to buy you. Just tell me what you want. Anybody got a wife in the room? (laughs) It's like, just tell me what you want. Tell me what it is. Because we feel safety and we feel comfort in having somebody saying, this is the door. This is how you will exit if there's a fire. That door is clearly defined for us. We know what it is. God is continuously reminding us, this is what is. You want to know what God says is? He says in 1 John 4, 17, as he was, so you are here in this world. Should we just shut the book and be done for the weekend? Because he's saying, as he was, so you are. This is what is. What Jesus was is what you are. See, Jesus came to endorse your identity. 
to show you what is, to show you what should be, to show your, your possibility, to show you your potential. This is what is. It says that you were designed, you were created in his likeness. The very likeness of God is the likeness in you. The likeness of Jesus is what is in you. It is what is in you. Now, I don't always feel like Jesus. <laughs> and we know I don't always act like Jesus. But that doesn't negate the fact that I'm designed in his image. See, I can allow this space over here to begin to define me and say, well, I don't act like Jesus, therefore I must not be like Jesus. I don't feel love, therefore I must not really be able to love people. I don't feel grace and forgiveness, therefore I must not be able to be a woman of grace and forgiveness. But God's saying, no, 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 that's not what is. That's what your feelings are. That's what your thoughts are. That's what your culture's telling you. But I have a different definition for you. So all through life, we're bobbling back and forth between the external definition. When I talk about your external definition, I'm talking about my culture. I'm talking about my friends. I'm talking about what I'm experiencing in a moment. Come on, you know your experiences are giving you messages, right? I'm talking about what I'm feeling in a moment. I'm talking about what I'm thinking in a moment. But God says there's an internal definition that is firmly rooted. It is built upon and it is established on Christ. And what he is, so you are in this world. Everybody put your hand on your, hand, on your heart. And everybody say, God, as you were, so I am. God, as you were, so I am. All right, that's awesome. Now, we hear a lot about identity. I had spoken at a women's conference. A welcome, men. I was going to try and crack a joke and be like, why are all the guys here? Um, but I didn't think you guys would get it. Um, so I didn't do it. <laughs> Because there's nothing bad, worse than doing a really bad joke and people just stare at you and you're like, okay, never mind. Um, so I did a women's conference a couple of uh, months ago. I think some of you ladies were there and I spoke on the Malach Yahweh, living in the revelation of God. And I talked about all the different times in the Old Testament where it says the angel of the Lord visited somebody. And when the angel of the Lord came to visit, it wasn't your ordinary angel, okay? This was a theophany, meaning it was kind of a pre-incarnate Christ, so there are times when it says the Spirit of the Lord visited him or an angel visited him, and then there were the times where it says an angel of the Lord. Well, it was almost like Jesus just injected himself into a situation. But the point of that entire message was this. Anytime Jesus injected himself into that reality, it was for one purpose, and it was to remind the person of their identity and of their purpose. Hagar. I see you in your wilderness. I see your abuse. I see the unfair treatment. I see that you're an Egyptian, that the world says you are not due an inheritance, but God is stepping into your reality, and I'm shifting your truth in a moment, and I say, Hagar, you are accepted. Hagar, you don't see anybody seeing you, but I see you in the midst of your wilderness. Hagar, the world says you're not worthy of inheritance. Your child isn't worthy of inheritance. But I say you get an inheritance too, Hagar. Come on. What the world says was not ready, was not equipped, was not justified for the kingdom God justified. Amen. See, that's an example of where the Malach Yahweh enters in. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. And the reason why we see this, if y'all want to hear this message, it's my podcast that was released last week. But the reason why we see this over and over again is because there is one theme there is one theme that is thread throughout the entire scriptures, and that is identity. And you want to know why it's thread all throughout the entire scriptures? Because we continuously forget it. And so every women's conference that I go to, they're like, can you speak on identity? And I think, oh my God, can we pick another topic? And God's like, no, because they still don't get it. Because they're still not getting it. See, we're still not coming into an alignment. Like, we have this knowledge of it, but we're not living in it. We have this knowledge that I'm filled with the joy of the Lord, but why am I struggling with depression? We have this knowledge that I have the satisfaction of the kingdom, but I feel so empty. Come on, we have this knowledge that I'm called to love and, and, and forgive and to extend grace, but I feel angry with this person and I can't seem to let it go. Come on, we have this knowledge that God is a healer, but I'm still very broken. Not just on the inside, but my body is broken too. 
But we got to reconcile these things, and it's very, very difficult. And so God is reminding us over and over again that we need a continual Malach Yahweh experience where we allow the Holy Spirit. See, the Malach Yahweh was a theophany. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. And then in the New Testament, it was Christ in the flesh. And then when he left, the Malach Yahweh becomes the Holy Spirit living and breathing within you. That at any moment, you can have a Hagar experience. You can have an Abraham experience on the mountaintop. You can have a Moses experience. These are the places where the Malach Yahweh came. And, they, and he injected himself and said, you need, you need an identity shift. You need a reminder. Look, I'm not here to change your reality. I want to remind you that God said to Hagar, hey, I see you. I have a blessing for you. Now go back into your abusive situation. He did not change her circumstance because he was more interested in changing her internal definition than he was her external definition. In fact, I would like to propose to you that he was using her external definition definition to shift her internal definition. Come on. Some of you right now have been begging for God to change a circumstance, and I would like to propose to you that God is more interested in changing your heart than he is changing your circumstance. That the Bible says that everything the enemy intends for evil, that God is shifting to good. And I would like to propose to you that if it is not good yet, God is not done. Because I know that if God says all things are working together for his good, that if it's not good yet, he's not done yet. Come on, we've got to believe that. We've got to believe that. So what keeps us from walking in the fullness of our identity? Colossians 2, 6 through 10. I'm going to read this to you. I love this passage of scripture. And every time I read it, I preach it, it was the core of the very first girls' conference I ever did. 15, 16, no. How many years have we lived here? 2005, what year is it? Anyways, how many of you people feel like you fell asleep in 2019 and you woke up and it was September 2021, right? So I love this passage and it says this, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Sounds easy enough. It is easy enough. Just do it. You know, some people ask me, like, how do I stop doing this? And, like, you just stop doing it. Now, I understand that's not easy, but it is that simple. So sometimes we overcomplicate things, and sometimes we need to stop trying to do what God already did for us. Do you see what I'm saying? So it says, so as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We're going to be talking about thanksgiving tomorrow. So in this, we have an invitation. See, God is saying, let me invite you. Let me invite you to walk in what? To walk in my definition, to walk in my likeness, because as I was, so you are. I'm going to say that all weekend long. I'm going to say that all week. As he was, so you are. Stop limiting yourself. So it's this invitation to walk in him, to root yourself in him, to establish yourself in faith, and to abound in thanksgiving. But then he gives this warning. He says this, beware, lest anyone cheat you. Now, some versions say take you captive. Now, we know to be taken captive means I have lost some freedoms in this area. So what he's saying is, look, I've given you freedom, but be careful Lest anyone, he's not saying the, the devil. He's not saying because we love to blame everything on the enemy, don't we? But he's talking about even just the world, your system, your experiences, the people around you. Not excluding the enemy, but also other things that the enemy works through. Be careful lest you be pulled away from the fullness of your freedom and you be cheated. Come on, the enemy wants to cheat you of your fullness. He wants to cheat you of your joy. He wants to cheat you of life. He wants to cheat you of your likeness in Christ. He wants to steal from you. Come on, do I need to remind you that John 10.10 says there is only one reason that the thief has come, and it is to steal, kill, and destroy. That is the only reason he is here. He is not your friend. He is not to be tangled with. He is not to be entertained. Don't even have a conversation with him. Ignore him. He is foul play. And all he wants to do is cheat you. He wants to cheat you of your time. He wants to steal your worship. He wants to make you busy in your head. He wants to make you worried. He wants to fill you with anxiety. He wants to pull you out of the holy of holies. All he wants to do is cheat you of your possibilities, cheat you of your purpose, steal your dreams from you, pull you out of your imaginations. He doesn't want you to do any of those things. 
because he's a liar and he's a thief and he wants you to feel cheated. And a lot of people in this room tonight feel cheated. And a lot of people in this room are walking cheated. And you haven't come into the fullness of who God has called you to be because you're giving so many things, so much power in your life. When God says there is only one person, only one place that you will find the completion, it goes on and it says, be careful, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men. What am I talking about? According to the system. We're all raised up in traditions. Whether it's the tradition of your education, whether it's the tradition of your grandma, whether it's the tradition of your church, whether it's the tradition of your community that you live within, whatever it is, there's a tradition that's trying to pull you away from the basic principles of Christ. So there's two options you see in this passage. You can either live according to the philosophies of the world, the empty deceit of the world, the basic traditions of man, or... or it goes on and it says, or you can live according to Christ. Then it goes on and it says this, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Now, how many of you have ever felt dissatisfied in life? If you don't raise your hand, you're a liar. How many of you have ever felt empty in life? Come on. How many of you ever felt disappointed in life? Come on. How many of you ever feel like I'm disappointed right now? I can't seem to, come on. But God is giving me the potential here, and he's saying, look, if you're feeling empty and you're feeling a lack of completion, it's possible you're being cheated of your fullness because you're looking to your system to fill your bodily head, to be your fullness. Come on, this is, I'm, I'm not, I'm just preaching the word to y'all. I'm not this smart. I'm not this smart. I'm only sharing with you what I've had to walk through myself. I was kind of nervous today because I've been going through some stuff lately, and I was like, Lord, please don't make me share some of this stuff. But I'm sure he probably will. We'll see. Look at everybody's like, please, 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 please. We just want to see her break. Please, God. We want to see her deliver a demon in front of everybody. I know. I know that's what some of y'all are thinking. I'm all right with that. For in him dwells the good fullness. Let me go back to the word. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him. Who is? Now he goes on further. It's like you're complete in him. Oh, and by the way, he's not just the head of the system, but he's head of all the principalities and all the powers as well. Right? So when you come into the completion of him, not only do you stand high upon the heights and you can stand over your traditions and your principles and your philosophies and all the crap that we've been taught in life, you also get to stand high upon the devil and all of his lies and all of the spirits that come with him and say, no, I am full. I am complete. I am not just standing high in the world, but I'm standing high in the principalities and the powers as well. Is that not what he says when he says, you are seated upon high in the heavenlies? You have the perspective that nobody else has. If only you would set your affections on things above and not on earthly things. Come on. That's what it tells us in Colossians 3. I'm not this smart, y'all. I'm just quoting scripture to you. If you don't know your word, you better get to know your word. Don't say you're a believer and you read your word when you don't. I'm just going to give it to you straight because I love you. David says this. In seven, Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Come on, let me say that again. I shall be satisfied when, when I wake up and I realize, oh my God, I don't have to be depressed. Oh my God, I don't have to be mad. Oh, I don't have to be offended. Oh my God. Okay, God, I get it. Come on, I'm just giving it to you straight. So he says, I, as for me, I will be satisfied when I finally decide to get over myself. And I finally decide to get over what everybody's saying about me and get over everybody's, how people perceive me and the opinion that people have of me. And I finally get over my failure. Come on, that's getting over yourself. Y'all, I'm just imitating myself at times. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. But listen, after crying out to the Lord for vindication, David concludes that the fulfillment in life is not about possession, it's not about title, it's not about accomplishment, but rather it's about who he's becoming. 
And you're going to hear me say that over and over again. So we're going to be talking about purpose, and people are always like, how do I know what my purpose is? How do I discover my purpose? How do I? And your purpose isn't a destiny. It's a journey. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you're becoming. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to come into the fullness of his likeness, right? And so he comes to this place where he's like, it's not about my title. It's not about my accomplishments. It's not about my possessions. It's not about getting the attention. It's not about all the likes on Facebook. It's not about all the subscriptions to this. It's not about any of these things. It's only about who I am being coming and suddenly I realized I'm becoming more like Christ. Last year that would have made me mad, but this year it didn't bother me at all. Last year I would have yelled at this and this time I just smiled. It didn't bother me at all. Last year I was depressed and now I'm filled with joy. Come on, I see a likeness coming into my life because it's not about my possessions. It's not about my titles. It's not about my accomplishments. It's about who I'm becoming in Christ. I'm discovering what it means to walk in the bodily head of Christ, in the fullness, the head of all principalities and powers, and I feel a completion in Christ, in Christ alone. I'm going to say that again. In fact, everybody put your hand on your heart. I don't care if you feel it or not, you're going to faith it right now. You ready? I feel complete in Christ. I repent of all the things I was begging for today. I loose those things in Jesus' name. And I received the completion in Christ. I received the completion in Christ. All right, so we just break that spirit off of you that says you're in lack because if you're in God, you're in the fullness. You are in the fullness. All right, so that completeness is not found in the world, but rather it's in recognizing your likeness in Christ. So let's talk about system and experience. Now, in the book, I'm going to be referring to the book a lot because if you haven't read it, you should read it. In the book... I talk about your system plus your experience equals your core beliefs, okay? So I've talked a little bit about your system today. I've talked a little bit about your experience. I'm going to go into that. But I want you to realize that you become the sum total of all that the system has taught you. So as you're growing up, you think about your education and think about your parenting, your parents, your family structure, your grandparents, where you went to church, what you were taught in church. Um, all of these things help cultivate your core beliefs, why you believe what you believe. In that also, we have your experiences. Now, your experiences all often send you messages. We know your, systems, or your system sends you messages like it's not appropriate for you to put your feet on the table while you eat. When we moved to the South, it was weird to me that people walk people to the door. I was like, what, why, what, well, I'm, see ya, I'm like on my cow's feet, I'm like, see ya, help yourself out. I just don't, and then I, did, and then I realized that apparently that's rude in the South. Yes, Paige, you and I have had this conversation. Yes, apparently that's rude in the South, and I was like, oh, I had no idea. So now I have to change my patterns to fit the culture, lest somebody think I'm rude, Right? And so it's like, uh, that's just an example of how we have, every, every place we go has different rules, and they send you messages. Well, your experiences also send you messages. The Bible says, or the, the definition of experience says, the process of, it is the process of getting knowledge or skill that is obtained from doing, seeing, or feeling things, or something that happens that has had an effect on you. So the verb form of to experience means to have something happen to you, to do or, to do or have a feeling of something. Now listen, let me, let me give it to you in the layman's terms. We not only gain knowledge from experience, but we also develop emotional and relational habits through experience. Okay, so this is where you guys are like, wait, can you just go back to preaching and stop teaching? What I want you to hear me saying is your system helps develop habits. Okay, which is your core, based on your core beliefs. But your experiences also develop emotional and relational habits as well. What do you mean by that? Well, if I was abused as a child, I'm going to develop a relational habit of I'm very standoffish with people. Okay, if I was rejected by my first husband, then I might have a relational habit or I have a core belief that I'm not worthy of being loved and so I distance myself from emotionally from my husband. Whatever it looks like. So we see this all the time in the counseling room. So now I'm going counseling with you guys. You're all like, great. And it's, you know. But it, so here's what happens is your system over the years and your experiences over the years have established your current belief system, which I like to shorten and call your BS. <laughs> because often it is just BS. And this is how we develop core lies. 
We develop core lies that we then carry into every situation with us. I was rejected as a child. I feel rejected. I've come into the definition of rejection. And every place I go, not only do I feel rejection, but I perceive rejection. My rejection is, per, is my perspective. And then it becomes the paradigm that I walk in. So when we talk about how your core beliefs predetermine how you perceive your core beliefs predetermine what your perspective will be. And your core beliefs predetermine the paradigm that you will walk in. Now, I'm going to give you lots of examples of this, but I want you to remember that statement because the book is really all about that one statement. Your core beliefs predetermine your perception, your perspective, and ultimately the paradigm, the pattern, or your personality that you walk in. So if your core beliefs are BS, it's possible there's some BS in your personality. And we're calling it our personality. Listen, if you're, if you're saying, look, 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 I'm just a type A, you know, I'm a type A, and so I'm just kind of a control person, and I just like things just particular, just like them just right, I would like to propose to you that it's possible you're a control freak and you fear things getting out of your box. The reality is, a lot of times, our personality looks less than the likeness of Christ. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Our personality looks less than, and we allow, we let the definition of our personality be the definition that we walk in instead of the definition of Jesus' personality. Okay, so when the Bible talks to y'all, none of this is in my notes. This is all for free. (laughs) But we're there, so we're going to go. The Bible talks about the difference between a sin, a transgression, and iniquity. I'm just going to teach you guys this weekend because I know a lot of people in the room. An iniquity is in the bloodline, okay? When it says Jesus was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for the iniquity. So an iniquity is in the bloodline. In other words, it is often a tendency, a bend, or a personality trait that we walk in that looks less than Jesus. Okay, so when we talk about generational curses, it's not just like, you know, all these, whatever, it doesn't have to be like a demon of pornography or something like that. It can be that I walk in an iniquity of fear. Or I walk in an iniquity of poverty mentality. Or I struggle with the tendency to feel rejected. Or I struggle with the tendency to be critical. Or I struggle with the tendency to make sure I have everything controlled. In. Or I struggle with the tendency to be jealous. Or I struggle with the tendency. And we, we dismiss that by saying, well, that's just my person. That's how I'm wired. Uh-uh. As he was, so you are. Not as your mama was, your daddy was, your grandma was, your system was. As he was, so you are in this world. So we're going to have to get over our excuses. Look, and I'm not just saying, I'm not saying that those things can't explain why we struggle. But when explanation turns into excuse, we're in trouble. Did I just rhyme? Well, that's what I'm talking about. So we want to be able to grab a hold of those things, those things that have often become a part of who we are. You know that uh, there's a scripture in Isaiah, help me, Pastor. It says uh, that they hold on to this thing in their left hand, and they can no longer say this thing in my hand is a lie because they've been holding on to it so long it's become a part of who they are. When we talk about, when we walk people through like letting go of a wound, you understand a wound can mold your personality. Right? It doesn't have to be, again, it doesn't have to be this, my head spinning around, throwing up everywhere, I got demons, whatever. We all got demons. You're welcome. So, but when you have a stronghold in here, yeah. I, I struggle with, with depression. And depression is a person that has become a part of who I am. And for 12 years, I'm just telling you my story now, okay? For 12 years, I established a pattern around this deep darkness that I felt inside of my soul. And I learned how to fake it really well, waking up in the middle of the night with panic anxiety attacks, the worst paranoia you could ever feel for no reason. But my entire personality, my system, my experiences got molded around this depression. And when God began to say that one thing I want you to let go of, there was, there was fear in me because I didn't know who I was going to be without this. And a lot of us feel like depression is holding on to us when the truth is, at this point in your life, it's probably you holding on to it. Yeah. 
A lot of us don't know who we would be if we didn't have the rages of anger. Oh, that's just my passion. That's how I run my business. Whatever it is, that's how I keep my kids in line. What? And we don't know who we would be. We don't know how we would behave. We feel like we'll lose. If I don't have my anger, I'm going to lose control. If I, don't have my, if I don't have that anger, people are going to bully me. And in my world, I'm in a man's world. And I got I to gotta, I gotta up to the, you know, these guys. But if it's not in the likeness of Jesus, you're cheating yourself. Ain't nobody else being cheated but you. Nobody else being cheated but you. So we're talking about our system and our, what are we talking about? We're talking, where are we? We're talking about our system and how we're being cheated by our system and our experience and our belief system just becoming a whole lot of BS. Let me talk to you about your perception for a moment. I have a client who, um, she keeps coming in and she has a child, a particular child, and she um, adopted this child, and she said, there's something not right with this kid. Like, you know, and, she, and I said, well, what's going on? And she said, well, she just glares at me. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, well, like glares at me, like continues, like I can have my back to her and I can feel her eyes glaring at me. And I can feel this mother's tension and just... And so I said to her, well, if that glare could speak a message, what message are you hearing? And what I was doing is I was trying to discover her core lie. Because I know if somebody's glaring at me, I'm going to be like, I probably wouldn't even notice. Sorry, guys. Sometimes people are like, I walked up to you and you just walked away. I'm just like, I don't know if you feel better or worse if I say I didn't notice you. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm too self-absorbed. I don't know. I'm willing for that to be it. But... I, so I'm thinking in my head, why is this getting her goat? She's like, and then finally I just crack and I just tell her to just go stand on the wall. And then just the rest of the day, and it just turns it uh, And I just, uh, 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 and I'm like, this is a 14-year-old. So I know it's not the glare. It's the message. There's a message, and I also know this message is your core lie. And finally she's like, well, she just, glares at me like I just do everything wrong. And so I said, well, do you feel like that's true? And next thing she's, she's like, well, maybe. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad used to, and so here it comes, right? And I'm not, I'm not obviously not making fun of this woman at all because in that moment, she's starting to go through deliverance, right? When we see tears like that and snot, we know deliverance is happening, right? And it's the ugly cry because she's like, and when I was a kid and then when I was, and my husband sometimes, and I just have all these kids and I feel like, and I couldn't even have kids on my own. I had to adopt kids and I, I'm just not good enough as a woman. And all this stuff starts coming out, right? It's not the glare. It's the core lie, Right? So what we were doing is we're pulling back and I'm saying, why did you perceive? See, her core life predetermined how she perceived that stare. It predetermined her perspective of that child. She was like, I have a hard time bonding with this child. Now, mind you, this is like on the third appointment, right? So she's like, and I have a hard time bonding with her. And, and it was affecting the entire personality of the relationship because of her core lie. Her belief system, which was what? B.S was just BS. So when we talk about our perception, the definition of perception is the ability to see, hear, or become aware of something through your senses. Now, there's a lot of foul play. There's a lot of room for foul play in that, right? Because our senses are a part of our flesh. And so if we're not careful and we're not intentional to sense through the Holy Spirit, we're going to sense through uh, how I'm feeling at the moment, we're going to sense through what I experienced just yesterday. We're going to sense through sometimes whether or not I've had enough sleep. Come on, let's just be real. Or whether or not I've had enough food, if my blood sugar's low. Like we're going to sense through our, it feel our flesh. And it will, it will change the way you perceive something in a moment. It goes on, it says, it's the awareness of something through your senses. It is the neurophysiological processes, including your memory, by which an organism becomes aware and therefore interprets an external stimuli in a moment. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of playground for the devil in your perceptions. There is a lot. And I love this question in the counseling room. I'll say, is that what really happened or is that how you perceived it? 
And it makes them, well, what's the difference? Well, there is a big difference, right? Because sometimes you and I can be standing in the same room and we perceive something completely differently. We've seen this with some of our residents, talking about your perspective. Your perspective is more your point of view. Everybody knows your point of view is right, right? I mean, my point of view is right. Your point of view is right. It's what I see. It's a point of view. And so your perception and your perspective, we can have two residents come in and say, we just watched these girls get into a fight, which has happened. We just watched these two girls get into a fight. One girl's standing in this corner, one girl's standing in this corner, and they're both watching the fight in the middle. This girl sees this girl's face. This girl sees this girl's face. This girl has abuse in her background. This girl's actually a bully in her background. You bet your bottom dollar we're going to get two totally different stories. Two totally different stories. But her story's right, and her story's right too. They're both right to them, but what they don't realize is they have different perspectives, and it's being filtered through different perceptions. They're filtering what they're experiencing. They're filtering what they're seeing. They're filtering the experience through their own core beliefs. I'm a victim. I've always been a victim. You should have seen the way she pulled her hair. No, no, she started it. I can't believe it. I don't feel safe here. And, and now it becomes all, you right? And so, and this one's like, oh, she should have just hit her because, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just completely different stories. And that is what happens. We see this all the time in the counseling room with couples that come in. And the husband says, well, nope, this is what happened. And blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, 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 this is what happened. Blah, 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 blah. And I promise you they say the exact same things. And I'm like, you're saying the same things. But they both feel completely different about what they're saying. Why? Because he's filtering it through his BS, and she's filtering it through her BS. We all got BS. It ain't the person around you. I'm just telling it like it is. All right. So in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, He raised us up with Christ and exalted one, with Christ, the exalted one. And we ascended with him into the glorious perfection and authority of the heavenly realm. For we are now co-seated as one with Christ. He made us sit in the heavenly places. The Bible says this, 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, now that I am in Christ, therefore, now that I recognize I am created and designed in the likeness of God, therefore, since I've been rescued from the pit of hell, therefore, since I've been picked up out of the darkness, therefore, since I've been brought into the light, therefore, from now on, Regard no one according to the flesh. Some of us can't get past that with ourselves, much less our neighbor. Some of us are still regarding ourselves according to the flesh. Well, because I feel depressed, I must be depressed. Well, because I feel like a failure, I must be a failure. Well, because I just actually did experience failure, that means I am a failure. No, no, no. We don't regard ourselves according to the flesh. Praise God. We regard ourselves according to the likeness of Christ because the Bible says what? As he is, so we so we are. Y'all is going to memorize that verse. Y'all need to write it, get it tattooed on your arm. I don't care what you do with it, but figure it out. Because as he was, so you are in this world. I'm not going to regard myself any longer according to the flesh. Meaning, you guys have heard me say this before. I'm like, okay, I did not invite a headache into this day. Okay. Or, uh, ooh, I'm sorry. I did not invite gossip into this conversation. <laughs> Come on, we're just going to keep it real. Uh, Oh, I didn't invite that critical thought into my mind. Like catching it and going, ooh, I will not not regard that thought because that thought is according to the flesh. It's not according to the likeness of God. That feeling is according to my flesh. It's not in the likeness of God. That experience that I'm legitimately experiencing isn't in the likeness of God, and I don't have to align my flesh, align my spirit, align my soul up to it. Look, I get to say I don't regard those things any longer, but I'm in the likeness of God now. So this is the paradigm that we often walk in, the pattern that's been established in our life, the personality because of these core beliefs. Now, I told you guys I'm going to teach you a lot this weekend. So you're going to have some preach with some teach. And it goes on and it says this. 
therefore, so as I said, I said this, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. See, we came to him, we came to know him according to the flesh. What that means is, I know what he looked like in the flesh, and I know that his likeness and what he looked like in the flesh is what my flesh could look like. Come on. That he came in the fullness of love. He came in the fullness of joy. He came in the fullness of peace. He came in the fullness of self-control. Come on, you know the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is your possibility. That is your likeness. If somebody says, you don't understand, Pastor Lisa, I just don't have patience, I will say, I rebuke that lie in the name of Jesus. Because if you are in Christ, you have the patience of Christ. Now, you may not be surrendered to it, but just because you're not surrendered to it doesn't mean it doesn't exist in you. Come on, there's something to be said that I don't have to work for things God has already given to me on the cross. Love. Come on, everybody say love. I'm filled with the fullness of love. I'm filled with, I want you to think about the one person you have a hard time loving. Let's come on, let's just make it relevant. I want you to picture that person in your head. Maybe it's a person that abused you as a child. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't really know. I don't really care. And frankly, the devil doesn't care either. He just wants to keep you from loving people. He doesn't care who it is. He's like, I just want to cheat you of your love ability. I want to cheat you of your joy ability. I want to cheat you of your grace ability, your patience ability, your faithfulness ability, your ability to see it through. Come on, you understand that God has given you what it takes to see it through. See it all the way through because you have a fruit of faithfulness. There's a difference between having faith and being faithful. You understand that, right? A lot of people have faith. Very few are faithful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Some of us need to realize that we've been given a fruit of self-control. When you're coming up against an addiction, you're coming up against a... Come on, you know you can be addicted to thoughts, right? Some of us are addicted to our own negative thinking. We're addicted to our own dysfunction. We're addicted to our depression and our anger and all these things. When you're addicted to those things, you have to recognize, God, you've given me a spirit. You've given me the fruit of self-control. And so I'm going to surrender my life to self-control because I can't fight this thing in my flesh. But God, you say, come on, but God, you say, but God, I'm going to put a demand on you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell God, I'm going to hold him to his promise. God, you say, we're going to be learning a lot this week. How do I declare what is true? How do I hold God to his promises? How do I know what is due me and shake the gates of heaven until they are loosed into my life? God, you say you've given me a, a spirit of flesh or spirit and a fruit of self-control. And I am loosing that right now in the name of Jesus. Do what you need to do. I love to give my clients gum. And we'll get different flavored gum, and I'll put love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. And I tell them this week, if you are struggling in a moment, I just, I'm struggling. I feel like I'm going to kill my kids. I feel like I'm, I just am struggling with joy. Okay, I want you to take that moment. You're going to go get your fruit of, you're going to go get your fruit of the spirit packages of gum. And you're going to be like, oh, I need joy, and I need this. And I want you to just take some time. I need them all, right? I'm just going to put them all in my mouth. And I'm, and I'm going to mentally and prophetically be saying in my head, just as the flavor of this gum is being released into my mouth, so I'm loosening the fruit of the spirit in my life. I just thank you, Lord, to just, God, if, if God, if man can make Make something natural enough to release flavor in my mouth. Come on, then God can re- can create something supernatural like to to release flavor in my life. Come on, some of us need some practical stuff because we're having a hard time. We're getting our butts kicked by impatience. We're, I'm telling you. And so we got to get us some gum and we got to take some time to taste and see and remember and remind and go, I'm not leaving this spot until I get some new flavors released into my mouth because some of us need a change of verbiage. Some of us need a change of language. Some of us need a change of flavor in our life. And you've got to activate that whole God to his promises. You guys, all kinds of free counseling tips. Let me give you some biblical examples. Gideon in, ja- in Judges chapter 6. I love this passage. It says in verse 12, and the angel of the Lord, what is that? The angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, that's my girls. 
you guys miss out. I'm sorry. You need to come to more of these. The Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, appeared to him. Now, let me tell you where he was at when he appeared to him. Gideon is in a cave. He's hiding in a cave, as a matter of fact. And the Bible says he's threshing wheat through a wine press. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but when they would gather their wheat, it was a sign of a good harvest, and they would go up to the mountaintop, and they would they would shake the wheat, they would slap the, the, the wheat on the ground, and so that the, it would get caught, the chaff would get caught up in the wind, and it would blow the chaff away, and there was almost a celebratory action in this. Look at this, look at the prosperity, look at the abundance, look at the fruit that God has given to me, it's so good, it's so good, and all the chaff has to go in the name of Jesus, because God has given me good things. But we find Gideon with his wheat in the dark, pressing it through a wine crest. Why? Because there was another character in the story. Here comes my little, my three-year-old stories. There's another character in the story, and they were called the Midianites. Everybody go, ooh, we don't like the Midianites. The Midianites in the Hebrew, just so you know, actually means tension and strife. Okay? So we're like, oh, I don't have any Midianites in my life. Oh, I beg to differ. <laughs> And I would like to propose to you that some of you have been given prosperity and lots of fruit in your life, like the fruit of love and the fruit of joy and the fruit of peace and the fruit of patience. And you're like in a wine press like this because you don't want the enemy to get a sniff of the goodness in your life for fear he might steal it because that's exactly what the Midianites did. Let me remind you that in this story, Gideon and all of the Israelites had already arrived in the promised land. They're already in the promised land, but they're hiding in a cave. And it goes on and it says, all of their goodness is being stolen. The Midianites were stealing. For the minute they would have anything prosperous, the Midianites would come in and say, oh, thank you, that's mine. And therefore they were left in a cave in the darkness, hiding. And it says in verse 12, and the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, appeared to him. Now, I also want you to know this. In verse 11, it says the angel came. And in verse 12, it says he appeared. In the beginning, there was a Holy Spirit that hovered over the expanse of the earth. It was there the whole time. But at the revelation of God, the Holy Spirit appeared in form. Okay? There was a ram caught in the thicket. We don't know when it got there. We have no idea how long it was there. But when it was time, there was a revelation of the provision that was there long before Abraham saw it. Come on. In numbers, there was abundance. There was fruit. They could see the fruit. And even though they didn't enter into the fruit, it did not negate the abundance of the fruit. See, the fruit was there even though it didn't appear to them. So we have here where we often see there's an appearance after the presence was already there. And I would like to propose to you that just because there's not an appearance of something in your life does not negate the presence of it in your life. Just because you don't see God, it doesn't negate the presence of God. Just because you don't see joy, it doesn't negate the presence of joy. Just because you don't see your promise, it does not mean your promise does not exist. Because in the scriptures, typically there was a he came and then he appeared it's like when the prophet said open up the eyes of my servant and suddenly for a moment he could see what was there all along which was chariots of fire protecting them watching over them the scales fell from his eyes and he began to see what was there all along Saul when he became Paul that's not the moment Jesus entered into the scene Jesus was here long before Paul had the revelation of Jesus and we need to recognize that there is a thing, there is a hovering, there is a something that God is doing in your life. His presence is already in that place, it's already in that space, and just because you haven't had the revelation of it yet does not negate the existence of it. That's what it means when it says Abraham died never seeing but still believing. He never had the revelation of the promised land. That amazes me, absolutely amazes me. But it did not negate the existence of the promised land. See, because the promised land was there long before it was revealed. It was there. And so in verse 12 it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, 
The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. God is saying to him, this is who you are. This is how I see you. You are designed in my likeness. I have put my hand on you. You are a mighty man. And Gideon goes, oh, you're right. Nah. No, just like us. We're like, what? Who, me? Gideon responds in verse 15. He says, so he, mean Gideon, said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh. He begins to argue God's truth with his system and his experience. And some of us are not only living in our system and our experience, they are becoming our argument with our purpose. Come on, I'm going to say that again. Some of us are allowing our system and our experience to be the argument. They're the very pinnacle of the argument that you're having with God, and it's what's keeping you from stepping into the fullness of your purpose. Oh, Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. This is how he saw his himself. This was his reality. And we see here that there were clashing identities. There were clashing messages. There were clashing definitions. We read this and we're like, Gideon, duh. Just like sometimes we're in the council room going, duh. (laughs) But we do that with each other too. We're like, come on, girl. Don't you see what God is speaking over you? Stop arguing with God with your experience, with your system, with your reality. Look, I'm not saying that God... uh, changes your reality, what I'm saying is he trumps your reality. He trumps your reality. Look, he doesn't care. You, some of us have to get to a place where like, this is actually legit what I'm experiencing and what I'm walking through. But in the presence of God, it's become inconsequential to me. Come on, I was having a conversation with Angela the other day. Tears, every time she comes in my office, I'm like, leave my office, stop making me cry. And I, I was like, I'm just kind of, I told you the Lord was going to have me share. Gosh darn it. I said, I'm just in this place right now where I, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. I can't really tell, but I just don't really care. Like, I don't really care. I don't care what you do with the YouTube, God. I don't, I don't care what you do with my books. I don't care if I ever speak on this day. I don't care, God. I don't really care. And I started thinking about my greatest stronghold and one of the things I struggle with the most. I'm going to be totally real with you guys. And I struggle and I hate the feeling of disappointment. I cannot, I don't know what to do with it because I can't fix it. You're like, I can't change it. That just happened. And then I have to wrestle through and work myself, you know, and coming out of like a history of clinical depression with panic, like I had to work through all of that. Being a seven on the Enneagram and being a prophetic person, we see big, lofty things. And God says that he is greater than we could ever ask or imagine. But can I be honest with you? Often he's smaller. I experience less than what I've imagined. And I struggle with feeling disappointed. And so I said to her, I said, I can't tell if, I, if this is a healthy place. Like I'm all of a sudden like, yes, I just don't care. Everything's become inconsequential. Or if this is now just my coping mes- mechanism for not having to deal with disappointment. Okay? So we go to your church for a prayer. And I'm sitting there having this conversation. I know I was supposed to be praying about the raised gathering, but I wasn't. <laughs> I was trying to work through my own stuff. I was like, God, I don't, I, what, what is this? Like, what, I've never felt this way. I've never felt like I don't really care. And so the Lord said, isn't it truer to say that it's not that you don't care, but that you're starting to discover that these things over here don't matter compared to what you're experiencing in the process? And I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. He's like, yeah, you're welcome. And so what he was saying is what's, what the problem is here is you've made the outcome of your purpose more important than just the heart of your purpose. Right? I mean, if you know me, you know my purpose is I love people. I love to teach people. I love to preach the word. I love to write. I love to write books. I love to write messages. I love to teach and train and all these things. And then there's all this stuff that God is saying, and you have this big platform, and here's all the things that need to happen to get there, and I get caught up in all of this, and this no longer feels fun for me because I'm not seeing what I want to see over here. And God's like, you need to cut yourself free from that and just stay in your happy place, right? And so... It's not that I don't care about those things. It's that those things don't really matter to me because I'm finding the fulfillment and the satisfaction in just sitting in my own little purpose bubble, doing what I love to do, preaching to nobody in a room. Come on, pastor, I know you've done that. You know, writing devos and putting them on there. Whether anybody reads, I'm like, there, that feels so great. I don't care if anybody likes it or not. I do not care. It doesn't matter 
It doesn't matter. It's become inconsequential in comparison to the joy I have in just doing it. That's why I say your purpose isn't about the outcome. It's about who you're becoming in the process. That was all for free. I knew that would come out. You're welcome. I want you to, I'm going to chose, I'm going to close with this and then we're going to shift to some demonstrations. I want you to think with me for a moment about the woman at the well. And I want you to think about the system that she came carrying with her. Her system told her she was an adulteress. Her system said, you're rejected. Her experience was isolation. Her experience was disconnection. Her experience is, her message was, you're unworthy. See, the Bible says that she was a man who had had five husbands, and the man she was currently living with wasn't her husband. And they would say she was an adulteress, but I would like to propose to you she was a rejected woman. Because in the culture of the time, only a man could marry and, and divorce. So if she'd had five husbands and now was living with a man who wasn't willing to marry her, I would like to propose to you we have a very unloved woman. A very unloved woman who struggled with rejection to the point that she wouldn't go to the well when other people were there. Which tells us that she also had shame. Come on, this woman was carrying some baggage. She also had condemnation. She carried rejection. She carried isolation. And those things became her paradigm. To the point that, hear me, when Jesus injects himself, she has a Malach Yahweh experience. When Jesus injects himself because the Bible says he must need go because he loved her so much, God says there's a woman over here that nobody else sees, but what the world doesn't see, you're going to see. What the world won't talk to, you're going to talk to. What the world has rejected, you're going to accept. What the world has said is not good enough, you're going to remind her she is good enough. What the world says is not worthy of life, you're going to say, you're mine and I want to fill you with life. Come on. He must need it go. That's what the Bible said. He must, there was something in him when everybody else was going to get food. He was like, no, 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 no. There's something I need to eat of over here. There's a pulling. There's a drawing of the spirit. There's a kingdom alluring because I sense one who needs a touch of the father. And he injects himself a Malach Yahweh. He shifts her reality in a moment, and he begins to speak to her. And one of the first things she says to him is, oh, apparently you're not aware of the paradigm. I'm a woman. You're a man. I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. You're not supposed to talk to me. And what she was doing in that moment is she was trying to teach and train him how to treat her according to how she saw herself. And I would like to propose to you that some of you have taught and trained people how to reject you, how to abuse you, how to mistreat you, how to not treat you like your design because you see yourself that way and you're like, no, if you want to be near me, you have to come into my paradigm and I come into depression. You have to come into my pit. You have to see me as smaller. You have to see me as little. You have to see me as whatever, fill in the blank. But in that moment, he tries to pull Jesus. He tries, she tries to pull the kingdom truths, the likeness of God, into a foul, cheated paradigm. And I would like to propose to you that a lot of us are trying to pull God into our paradigm. We're trying to make him make sense. I need you to fit into my depression, God. I need you to, to justify my anger, God. I need you to fit into my sickness, God. I need you to excuse my affliction, God. I, surely God knows that I have the right to be angry. I mean, if this person, come on, I know there are probably some people in this room who have experienced some severe abuse in your life. And I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I am trying to get you to know that God is bigger than that. That God wants to heal that very spot. But if you do not say, okay, I'm not going to pull God into my paradigm of wound and hurt and brokenness, but instead I'm going to allow, I'm going to take the courage, I'm going to be confident, and this takes a lot of courage. I'm going to be courageous enough to get out of my paradigm and possibly imagine that maybe I don't have to be broken for the rest of my life. That what my daddy did to me, what my boyfriend did to me, what my aunt did to me doesn't have to affect where I'm going. And it definitely doesn't have to affect who I am today. See, she tried. She tried to say, oh, poor Jesus doesn't know how he's supposed to be. He's going to get in trouble. He's going to get in trouble. I mean, Hagar, 
I'm sorry, you don't know who I am. I'm just an Egyptian woman. Gideon, uh, oh, you don't know. I'm just, I'm just a small man from a weak clan. Right? Trying to justify instead of saying it's possible that God has something bigger for me. It's possible that God has something outside of this definition for me. It's possible that God wants to break me free from my system and my experience and I'm going to come out of all my BS. It is possible. It's not only possible, it's your truth. It is your truth. I want us to think about this woman at the well who just sat and had a Malak Yahweh, an experience with Jesus. Conversation. The Bible, the history tells us this is the longest conversation in, in the Bible, recorded in the Bible, is between Jesus and a woman, by the way. But it's the longest conversation in the Bible. Because they're just interacting. They're just having conversation. There's no judgment. I, I love to, to give this assignment to students, and I say, I want you to picture just Jesus as he's, the Bible says he was reclining by the well. He's just relaxed. He's not bothered by her stuff. I, I'm, I think about in John chapter 11 when he shows up to the tomb, and, and everybody's like, oh, he probably stinks by now. And I would like to propose to you that some of you have come in this room and said, I'm just too stinky for Jesus to resurrect anything in my life. It's, it's just long gone and dead. And, and I, I felt, I, I gave this word last week, I felt like the Lord was reminding us in Acts where Peter is sitting in, in prison. And, and you got to grasp this for a moment. He knows John the Baptist goes to prison and he gets beheaded. He knows James has just gone to prison. He's been beheaded. He's seen Jesus himself be hung on a cross. And Peter, the one Jesus said, you will no longer be just Peter, teeny tiny little pebble, but you'll be Peter, the rock upon which I build my church. You know, he shifted his reality in a name change, which is a message in and of itself. And as he's sitting there, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the Bible says he's sitting there and he was sleeping in his shackles and his chains. And, and I, I don't know. We had this conversation in my class. We don't know if he was depressed or if he was just at peace, if he was content. But I feel like the Lord showed me last Monday, 6, 12 in the, mor in the morning, a.m., that sometimes we get into this place where we're like, well, I guess this is just it. And, and, and as a Christian, I should just be content with where I'm at. And I just don't really care about all those things anyways. And at just the nick of time, isn't it funny? And we come to this place where we kind of settle and we conclude, well, I guess this is just it for me. I guess that was my run. You know, I've written six books and you know, God's kind of done some stuff, but oh, yeah, that's it. That's good. Oh, yeah, maybe that's it. I don't know. I'm cool. I'm cool with that. And I felt like the Lord was like, just the right time, there's an awakening coming, not just for me, but for every person in this room. I believe this is a word for America. I spoke this word last week. I feel like the angel of the Lord struck him and said, get up. But I would like to propose to you that the Bible says, come on, I'm not making this up. The Bible says that an angel of the Lord showed up in the cell and it shone. It was shining super, super bright. And Peter was still sleeping. And so long before there was an appearance, there was a presence. See, long before Peter saw the presence was there. And I would like to propose to you that there's a hovering going on in this room. There's a, a hovering going on in each one of our lives. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to click subscribe so you can catch each episode every month. I want you to walk in your fullness. For more information about other services and resources, head to my website at www.lisa-schwartz.com. You can also find me on YouTube by searching Lisa Schwartz LLC. I look forward to connecting with you. Remember, enforcing purpose, it starts with you.